the author of six novels and former host of the award-winning show Gilmore and the Arts, David Gilmore's novel A Perfect Night to Go to China, won the 2005 Governor General's Award for Fiction. His next book, The Film Club, has been translated into 25 languages and has sold more than 200,000 copies in Germany and 50,000 copies in Brazil. He lives in Toronto with his wife, Tina Gladstone. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much for having me again. I've been on this show and had a nice time last time. Sparkly, but nice. That's I've never been want. told to fuck off before. <laughs> and I, I love that interview more than pretty well any other one I've done. So thank you for telling well, me. Well, I've encountered off. people who've heard it. People who actually come up to me, and it's interesting, you know, I worked in television for a while and had this shootout with Michael Moore, and I must have interviewed, you know, oh, uh, over 15 years, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people. The interview people invariably come up to me on the street and say, you know, I saw that interview you did with Michael Moore. Boy, you guys really hated each other. You said, what was so great about it is that you don't often see people on the air who truly hate each other. And about your thing, people have come up and said, you know, I've never heard anybody tell a radio host to fuck off before. And some of them listen to it, I think they got a chance to listen to it twice, because they can, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> they can listen to it in perpetuity. <laughs> from that to Proust, you start the perfect order of things with a quote from Proust. Nowhere do so many flowers grow as in a cemetery. I'd like to follow that up with, it's going to be a bit lengthy, yeah, absolutely. Look, but if you're talking about Bruce, it's always lengthy. My God, the man wrote the longest published sentence. You know what he did? His, long, his sentence is it's a 975-word monster that's one sentence. So <clears throat> when you talk about Bruce, folks, if you're in a hurry, this is the wrong show. This is actually uh, George Painter, the biographer of Proust. Okay, here we go. A still important consequence follows from the study of Proust's novel in the light of his biography. A la recherche turns out to be not only based entirely on his own experiences, it is intended to be the symbolic story of his life and occupies a place unique among great novels in that it is not, properly speaking, a fiction, but a creative autobiography. Proust believed justifiably that his life had the shape and meaning of a great work of art. It was his task to select, telescope, and transmute the facts so that their universal significance should be revealed. And this revelation of the relationship between his own life and his unborn novel is one of the chief meanings of time regained. I'm about halfway through. No, no, I'm not in a hurry. Take your time. But though he invented nothing, he altered everything. His places and people are composite in space and time, constructed from various sources and from widely separate periods of his life. His purpose in so doing was not to falsify reality, but on the contrary, to induce it to reveal the truths it so successfully hides in this world. Behind the diversity of the originals is the underlying unity, the quality which he felt they had in common, the platonic ideal of which they were the obscure earthly symbols. He fused each group of particular cases into a complex, universal whole, and so engaged the truth about the poetry of places, or love and jealousy, or the nature of duchesses, and most of all, the meaning of the mystery of his own life. In my belief, the facts demonstrated in the present biography compel us to take an entirely new view of Proust's novel. A man's life of any worth is a continual allegory, said Keats. A la recherche is the allegory of Proust's life, a work not of fiction, but of imagination interpreting reality. That's dazzling. 
what Proust did was give us art which discovers the inner meaning of what exists. And I suspect, and I think, that that's what you've done with your novel. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's absolutely true, and it's, I'm glad that you're taking this angle because I wrote the book as a piece of nonfiction initially, uh, and then I realized that actually art requires some inventiveness to make it work on the page, and if it doesn't work on the page, it doesn't really matter if it happened or not, it has to work on the page. Proust understood this too, so that you have this relationship with your material which is, it is basically true, but in order to transform it into a work of art, you have to apply inventive imagination to it. And at some point I had done so much of that that I thought that I was simply going to be called a liar if I published this nonfiction. But to tell you the truth, it didn't really matter much to me because I thought that I was going to have a terrible time with this book because it's really not a novel. By any stretch of the imagination, it's not a novel. And I was very reluctant when my publisher said, well, you know, you've got some things in here that didn't happen. And I said, yes, but the problem is 85% of the book actually did happen, and the 15% that I've added could easily have happened. So I'm very reluctant to write this off as a novel. Is it rewriting your memory of things? Is it going back and not cleaning up the memories, but making peace well, with them? It, it is, you know, it, the previous book did really well, and they flew me over to Germany for a book tour, and over lunch I got drunk overexcited. I thought I was in the Beatles there for a couple of weeks, <laughs> flying around Europe, and I'd never toured with a number one hit, and when I arrived in Germany, it was number two on the Der Spiegel bestseller list. It was like being in the Beatles. And why do you think that the faintest guy film no, is big? No, because then it was number two in Brazil for six yeah. months, so then they flew me to Brazil, uh, and, and then it, it tanked in France. The French hated it. Then it did extremely well. It was a bestseller in Quebec a different French translation. So I have absolutely no idea, but I do know that, that when I was in Germany, I thought that this was just too good to be true, and it was up in all the airports, and I thought, this is just great. And not, not only that, it means that, I mean, let's be vulgar about it, it, it also, I made it, I cleaned up, I made an unbelievable amount of money. I've never made that kind of money before. So and you gave your son 15% of much. And, and, you know, that was a double-edged sword, and I will talk about that in a second. But sure. when I was out to lunch with the Germans, I did tell them the true story, but and it opens the book, and I said, you know, that when I was in Toulouse when I was 21, I was heartbroken, and I went to this cafe every day, and I thought about this girl, and then 35 years later, I went back to that same town as a reasonably successful writer, and I was writing an article for some magazine, and I went to that cafe and discovered that I had never been to the other side of the cafe. I was so obsessed with this woman's body and what she was doing with it, and the fact that I might not ever be able to sleep with her again that I, I couldn't investigate. I couldn't see anything for six months except the horror of my own imagination. So when I went back 35 years later, I went around the corner and there was the biggest river in France. It was the most beautiful, exquisite river. And I thought, oh my God, what else have I missed? What else did I just not see? Because I've had my heart broken subsequently. And I'm sure that there are years that have gone by where I've seen nothing. Anyway, I told the story at lunch and with my German publishers and publicists. And of course, you know, they're Germans, right? So the guy, the, the guy who's the, the, the financial manager has a PhD in music and philosophy as well as his degree. <laughs> and no heart? And they were all enchanted by it. They were just... So three weeks later, the, the phone rang, and it was the publisher, of Fischer Verlag, and he said, do you, do you remember that story you told? And I said, no, I don't. Just, just sing me a few bars, and it'll come to me. And he said, well, we think that this book is already inside you. And this is a book about you going back to all the places where you've suffered, but looking at them from now the perspective of a reasonably happy adult. 
and they said, but what's interesting to us is that this book is already written. All you have to do is just translate it. We know this book is already inside you. That's so interesting because yesterday I was talking with and interviewing Douglas Gibson, the publisher, and mm -hmm. he, he said exactly the same thing to Mavis Gallant about Home Truths, which went on to win the Governor General's Award. It's already in you. Right, it's, right. It's, it's like a, that's the value of a publisher in a sense. It, it is. It's also very interesting that that was one of the things that Proust believed. Proust believed that actually, I mean, Alaric Sheriff's to Tell Perdue is a 4,300-page book where actually the point of it is the, it's the story of an artist becoming an artist and all of the stuff that he does before. But one of the things that Proust discovers at the end of the book during a party, which lasts about 200 pages, literally, is he discovers that not only is the act of writing his way of being more profoundly in the present and alive than any other activity, that's why he's truly beyond time in the act of creativity, but also that the thing that he always was waiting to write, the so-called story, he'd already lived. Mm -hmm. It was already done. All he had to do now was transcribe it yeah. into the page. Life yeah. is the first draft. And I feel very much the same way. I've always had an intuitive understanding or a feeling that actually making stuff up wasn't the route to go. That actually you discover what's already there and you excavate it. Yeah. You excavate it very carefully and very artfully until what you do is you find the pureness of who you are and you get it onto the page. And if you do it properly with the right artistry, it's actually who everybody else is too. And that's why Proust is more than just a fey, gay, uh, Paris, 1920s aristocrat. That's why anybody can read Proust and mm. find himself in it. And you, you deal with Tolstoy as well, and you claim that he is more than anyone else able to sound the correct note. Right, right. So it's, it's right. a pureness. Yeah. But well, it's be because it, it requires not just the pure truth of being, it requires artful representation. And what Tolstoy did, I think, better than anyone else, was he had great instincts, and he knew how, once you had the truth, to tell it in the form of a story which would leave a reader completely satisfied the way a chord progression will leave a listener totally satisfied. And the example I use in one of the things is that these, it's a simple C, A minor, and F. Everyone in the audience, whether they like it or not, will lean forward in the mm. anticipation of that chord. Even if they're not musicians, they're going to know that there's one chord and only one chord that's going to do it. Tolstoy knew how to hit that chord every time, even when he was old and daffy writing the Kreutzer Sonata about a jealous guy who kills his wife. The scene in which he kills his wife is so perfectly told as a satisfying piece of perfect story. You know, there's a guy, it's like the guy who can tell a joke perfectly. Yeah. Tolstoy's the guy who can t tell a story at any length perfectly. And fulfill our expectations. And fulfill the expectations which he creates in the opening frames. That's a degree of artistry. Truman Capote said an interesting thing about, and I don't know what you think about it. I've thought about it. He said, you know, if Proust had actually written what actually had happened, rather than what he fabricated into a work of art, the book might not have been as great, but it might have been more interesting. Less artistic. Less artistic. And I yeah. think that that's what Capote did near the end of his life. You know, he wrote those stories about the rich and the famous in New York. And I love them. I think they're really, really good. He didn't bother with a, much of an artistic transformation. He was just an, an extremely gifted writer 
who had a, uh, an unalterable ear for gossip, and he pretty much just transcribed gossip. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if you know uh, answered prayers. Yeah. But, well, it was his attempt, and it took him 25 years, and he never really succeeded. He only wrote three chapters, and he lost all his friends, and then alcohol and drugs kind of swallowed him. But it's really about the life of the rich and famous, the people that he spent all his time with. And he kept saying to everyone who would listen that he was writing Proust's late 20th century version of Proust. It was going to be, he was going to do for the Manhattan upper class what Proust did for the aristocracy in the 1920s. And due to his own terrible drug and drinking problems and uh, the limitations, I think, of his own talent, um, although there weren't many limitations, there were some, um, he never really managed to do it. But he kind of believed that what Proust had done was just essentially write about gossip in an extraordinarily artful way. And Capote's argument was, well, don't even change the names then. Just write it the way it is. So when I wrote this book, I thought, this book's going to fail, for sure, because I'm, I can't be bothered turning it into a novel. I can't be bothered. And on the other hand, uh, I have to make certain artistic rearrangements here for these stories, some of these stories, to play on the page. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to get caught either as a wanker or as a self-plagiarist. And I thought, you know, I'm 61. My house is paid for. I won't read the newspapers. Fuck it. I, I gotta tell you, I'm surprised that actually anybody likes it. Because I think the writing is the finest writing I've ever done. But I thought that people would not see it for what it was, that they would think it was some autobiographical wank, as opposed to my life held over a flame with all the fat boiled off. Like, and there's no reason that anybody would wait for my book on Mars. But if I had to say anything I'd ever written this to Mars, what a wonderful, this would be it. What a wonderful feeling, though. You produce something that you're ultimately very, very proud of. And you know what? I find it absolutely unreadable. It's like I, I, I sang my funeral song. I keep trying to, because I'm on this very short book tour, I've been trying to prepare for it. But I can't read it because I feel like it's a contemplation of my life which is so complete and so purified okay. that I actually don't need to revisit ever again. You can't talk about the poem. Yeah, it's the poem. That's it. I said to my son, look, you know, don't read this now, but when I'm gone, if you ever really want to know what I'm like, you can read my earlier books, but if you really, really want to know what I was like with all the fat, all the bullshit, all the riffs and the, and the, the pirouettes, read A Perfect Order. It, not only is it my true autobiography that goes beyond fact, but mm. it actually is a farewell song. That's what I'm looking for here, because I, it was a little saddening, because you said you're cleaning things up. You're getting your psychological house in order. Yeah, right. And there's a beautiful way you put it, too. You talk about it's more like a light bulb cooling off after you click off the power. Things just slowly fade until they match their surroundings. Uh, that, that's about death. But <laughs> I love it. I was hot when I wrote that. I can't write a sentence like that right now. My life depends. <laughs> but you know what? It also is. It's a true moment, which is that I thought this book was about a guy who goes back to places where he suffered. But actually, I truly discovered in the last chapter that it was actually the book of a man who's getting ready to die. Me. There's no melodrama. No weep. Oh, this is so sad. No, but I'm not leaving tomorrow. You're not. But as but the I'm, reader, I'm thinking, God, does he have cancer? No, but I feel as if my life is winding down. It is a sensation of being where my life force is ebbing and I can see it and feel it. You don't want to have sex so often. 
That's like a rattlesnake's tail. That's the last thing to die. <laughs> well, that's a good. That's a good thing, is it not? I'll, I'll be honest with you. I wouldn't mind sex leaving me alone for the rest of my life. I find it still an oppressive master. Now, fortunately, I, I'm very attracted to my wife, but but I, I I sometimes think, you know, I've been doing this for about 45 or 50 years now. It's like, how many children am I supposed to have? You know, I wouldn't welcome impotence, but what I would welcome would be a lack of desire. I would like to go through the world without looking at it in terms of who I want to fuck. I'm tired of that. That's what Plato said. Did he? Yeah, he did. <laughs> Is that true? He, in it might be the Republic or one of the dialogues, he talks about how wonderful it is to be an old man because you're not harassed by this. Well, I'm looking forward to that because I do find still I'm faithful to my wife and, and I understand that, that if I'm not faithful to my wife, I will lose her. And when she married me, she made a deal. She said, look... I know you very well. I know what you're like. I know all the wives and the drinking and the pills and all that stuff. But here's the deal. I'll marry you if you agree to two things. No other women and no pills. I can't handle other women and you can't handle pills. So, what do you <laughs> do? Will you honor that? So, my sensation that is, is that I'm, and it alarms my wife because she's much younger than I am. But I, I keep saying to her, look, I've had a good kick at the can. You don't understand. I've, my children are healthy. I wanted to publish a couple of books. I wanted to have a great love affair. I, I wanted to die before my children. You know, I'm ready to go. And actually, everything I'm going to do from here on in will actually be a repetition of something I've already done. In other words, I've done all the things I want to do in this life. So very, very comfortably and slowly, I'm packing my suitcase and getting ready to say goodbye. Because I don't find the notion of death remotely frightening. I look upon it as a, as a welcoming, as a, just a little nudge on the sleeve and someone's going to say, David, it's time to go. And I'll be ready. I'm ready now. What a great space to be in. Well, you know... <laughs> it's no fear. You, you talk about not having fear. I have no fear of it, but it, yeah. it's taken me a long time, a long, long time to get here and then to realize what it is that I was feeling. And I realized it at the end of this book was I thought, this isn't about this guy. This is about a man. This is about me getting ready to die and writing a, a nice farewell note to the people I love. And that's what this book is. And I will never write another serious book after this. Everything I write from here on in, and I've already written one book, will be what Graham Greene calls an entertainment. Because I don't have any stakes. This was the last high-stake poker game I've ever played. And from here on in, unfortunately, I will be writing as a hobbyist, and it will probably show. And I probably won't be on the show again because of it. <laughs> you'll read the next book in two years, and you'll go, uh, what, what the, the hell is this? <laughs> what? Where'd all the <laughs> where'd all the life go? <laughs> That's right. See, so we look at the last page. It, in a way, it's melancholic. The fact that yes, we're all going to die, and you're packing your bags. So there's a, a feeling of melancholy, and then that's compounded. And I want to to ask you to read this at the end of the interview. Sure. But it's my favorite chapter, by the way, by far that chapter. Well. It's melancholic because you talk about Raisa. Yes. And she's with you at the very end. The very end. That little girl, real name, by the way. She was my great love in first year, 1968, at Victoria College. And her name is Raisa Shostatsky. And uh, that's what she looked like, smelt like, felt like. And um, here we are 45 years later. I have no idea where she is or who she is, but that's her real name. And uh, one of these days, one of her grandchildren may go, Grandma... You're famous. To, I got something to show you. <laughs> well, you left with that, which was saddening, and yet the overwhelming sensation after finishing this book was 
I want to get out there and have love affairs. I want to get out there and live. And you're you're filled with a sort of motivation to get out and do stuff. Nice. That's really Did, lovely. You have that in mind? Or? No, not at all. Not at all. I only had a, a sensation that you know that Raisa was this beautiful young Ukrainian girl who I didn't appreciate sufficiently when I was 18 and who left me and broke my heart and made me suffer for two years. But that now at the end of my life, even though I haven't seen her since those days, I'm grateful for her. I'm grateful that such a beautiful girl was in my bed, albeit briefly. And I'm, I'm grateful that at least when I suffered over, at least I was at the center of life. I wasn't to the side of it. I was a real participant in life. I got to Yes. I was in the big league. You saw the highs and yeah. the lows. And I... there, there's a thousand other events and people and incidents like Raisa for which I'm now, at the end of my life, grateful because it's been, it's been a full house. Yeah. And I used to think that it had to be all good to be happy, but actually I understand now that nobody ever said going in that this was supposed to be a, a, a happy deal. You want the contrast. I want the full deal. So, yeah. you know, when I'm on my bed next year or five years or ten years and I'm on my way out, I'm going to think, well, I didn't miss the boat, you know? Yeah, yeah. I didn't miss the boat. That's, I got it. And that's exactly you the know? feeling you get, I got, after reading I this. I sure was... suffered a lot, but I had the full experience of being alive. You yeah. know? If you believe, as I do, that when, when you go, that's it. You know, there is no martini lounge in the sky that I'm going to, you know, find myself Frank <laughs> yeah. with Frank Sinatra with. I'm, I, you you left little, it all on the table. My little or... spark is going to go, and that is going to be the end. And I feel like for this, I got dealt a, a good enough hand. Some mm. people had better, some people had worse. My hand was good enough. Okay, let's juxtapose that with, now I read your Proust questionnaire, and you said two things. Your worst fault was assuming people are being intentionally hurtful when they are not. Yeah, right. And also, the thing you didn't like was your need for people to be impressed by you. Yeah. So have you banished that? Because that's a, that's no, an important no, part and, of your. And, and and it's one of those things you catch yourself doing. In other words, I understand that it truly doesn't matter what people think of me. Yeah. But I find myself sometimes in the presence of new people, trotting out certain stories, trotting out statistics, trotting out how many copies my last book yeah. sold. 200,000 in Germany thinking, alone. And then <laughs> thinking, why are you doing that? And it's a reflex. It's in my body. And I think it's, you know, and I don't want to get too flighty about this, but, yeah. you know, I think when I was a young, skinny, short young boy, the, the younger brother of a, of a bullying athlete, I think that I understood quickly that I needed to impress people and I couldn't do it physically, but I could do it verbally. And so I began to develop a personality where I spoke very, very well, very quickly, and impressed people. But now that I no longer need to impress people, that little boy is still in me. And if I don't pay attention, he comes leaping to yeah. the surface and yeah. just snaps into action because he's who I am. The body never forgets pain, and so it also never forgets who you were when you felt that pain. And if you think that the same circumstances are in the area, i.e. somebody's going to disapprove of you or not like you, you tend to snap back into action. That little that guy rolls. comes forward yeah. with all his little... T and then I find myself saying, thinking, shut up, stop talking, yeah. stop doing this. You don't because, have to. Because the, sense of, the sensation that it leaves in me is a sense of poison creeping through my body. I'm poisoning myself with my own toxic vanity. Isn't going back like you've done in your memory, isn't that what therapy is about? It's sort of going yes. back to that little boy yes. and saying, you know what? Yes. Things have yes. changed. Things and have that's changed. what you're doing with your right. book in a way. And you can tell your head that. Training your body to do that yeah. is another thing. Because yeah. as I said, you know, and I say it a number of times in this book, your body never forgets pain. 
sometimes where I went in, in this book where I went to places where I thought that I had quite transcended any of the awful things that happened to me, I found myself creepily starting to feel the same way that I did the last time I was there, as if my body had ignored everything that had happened in the interim and went right back to the point of pain 30 years ago. And my conclusion of that finding was, stop beating yourself up about feeling bad about these things. Stop trying to change yourself. Just stop going back to these places because yeah. they make you feel shitty. So stop doing it. Yeah. Just stop doing it because your body is bigger than you it's, are. That's what de explains depression in many Absolutely. cases. It's your body your, that shuts you yeah, down. Yeah, your body with death to all the instructions. Yeah. Here's this gibberish coming out of your head that goes, look, we know what we're doing. We've just dismissed the whole talk therapy industry. Well... <laughs> I just know that, you know, in the time that remains to me, I don't want to spend any more time unnecessarily unhappy. And one of the things that will make me unhappy is to go to places where I was unhappy. Toxicity from the environment will trigger something in my soul and I'll start to feel it again. And I don't need 10 years of psychotherapy to get rid of it. I just need to take a right turn instead of a left turn when I get to that part of the city. That part of the city, writers, the Canadian writing world, a toxic bunch and a, and a toxic experience. My body, when I'm in the presence of self-advertising Canadian authors in particular, starts to do it involuntarily because it remembers a time when I was an unsuccessful writer, frustrated yeah. young writer. Trying to and impress. Like Andre Gide, I didn't understand why people just couldn't look into my eyes and see all the good books I was going to write. And I was furious about that. And so when I find myself in the presence of Canadian writers, and they're a tiresome bunch because they're usually insecure. They usually trot out their, their latest career updates without being asked. They go on at great length about their one little triumphs. What happens is you start doing it too. Within the space of 10 minutes, you both feel as if you've been poisoned, yeah. absolutely yeah. poisoned. So I stay away from Canadian writers because it makes me behave like someone I used to be and am no longer, which is an angry, frustrated young writer who is so distracted by the failure of his professional life that he can't do anything but loathe everyone around him. And I don't want to feel like that anymore. I have felt enough poison in my life. So even though I may be in the presence of the most innocent you know, writer from Alberta, I avoid it because I know that I'm going to start trotting out my cards and she's going to trot out hers and we're both going to feel like shit. So mm -hmm. hang around with astronauts. You know, my wife's not a writer. My wife is a television producer. I don't care about television, so I love listening to her talk about her life because yeah. I've got no vested competitive interest. It comes up in, in the pigeon chapter. Right. And, it's, and, it's and devastating. My publisher, she did say, you know, he said, look, you know this asshole Andre Alexis? That's the yeah. guy I go after. He said, do you really think it's a good idea to write a piece about what assholes they are at the Globe and Mail, knowing full well that we're going to submit this book to them for a review. <laughs> What's the name of the guy who runs the book? Martin, Martin. Levin. Uh, Martin Levin actually is, I mean, I, I take a terrible swing at him. It's a very unflattering and very my exact portrait of Martin Levin in here, unfortunately. All that stuff happened. Is that he actually has, uh, to his credit, more largesse than I would have thought because he could have assigned that book to somebody who really dislikes me and it's not hard to find people who are not big fans of mine he actually gave it a fair shot and yeah. gave it to a woman i don't read reviews but my wife said boy you ducked a bullet this time yeah, um, was good so he you. was a he was a fair he's a fair guy about it but it started i started off no no don't tell me i don't want to hear about it. i don't hear no 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 okay. i don't want to hear one one word but I, I there's a reason i don't read reviews because okay. i don't want i don't want anything in my head but what was amazing was that he just had the largesse to sort of farm it out. And yeah. the next thing I knew is I was getting all these emails and they said, you got this lovely review. And I don't care about that. What I do care about, because I'm vain, is 
When you get a bad review, you think everyone in the world has read it. And so what happens is when you run into people, you're looking in their eyes and you're thinking, are they feeling sorry for me? Is everything they're saying disguising the fact that they've read the review and they're feeling sorry for myself? Or mm. worse, am I just imagining this? And, and this can go on for months and months and months. And it did after the Andre Alexis thing. Because I walked yeah. around. In like, your head. And it was, it was like poisoning my heart. And I thought, the only way I'm going to get rid of this is by smacking this guy, finding him and smacking him across the face. Now, I ended up smacking a critic across the face of after Earth Bar. It wasn't Andre Alexis. But it is true that when that review came out, I went looking for him. I went to every bar and I said, tell that motherfucker David Gilmore was here and was looking for him. And if I'd found him that night, he was going down. He was like, you know, I've, you've got children, I've got children. One thing I don't tolerate is people criticizing my children. Their mothers can do it to me and I can do it to them, but nobody else can. I feel the same way about my books. I'm not interested in honest criticism. At this stage of my life, I want money, praise, and fame, and nothing else. But I kind of feel bad, in a way, kissing your ass here. Well, I, I've had but my ass kicked. This I think great. this is a terrific, terrific well, book you've written. Thank you very much. Here's how you get back into Critic. Those stupid, affected glasses, deliberately ugly, <laughs> glasses that said, aren't I interestingly unattractive? <laughs> love it. I was so hot when I wrote that. I can't write like that now. And thank God. But I really can't write like that. I, I open that book and it's like the temperature in the room goes up 15 degrees. And I think, <laughs> man, I was hot. Yeah, well, it's it's so great to have captured it Very here. kind of you. We talked about Tolstoy, and I'm speaking with David Gilmore, who is the author most recently of The Perfect Order of Things, published by Thomas Allen. Actually, I want to change gears here because I just looked at the cover. And you've had one of the great dust jacket designers work on a number of your books, Gordon Robertson. Yeah, right. Right, right. back at Coach you House. You noticed that, right? And he won an AIGA award for that. What, what is that? That's AIGA? the, it's out of New York. It's, it's a big news, graphic design, 50 books of the year. What was it? Uh, Tuesday, the, the book, The Coach back House. Back on Tuesday. That one. That one at, with uh, the airplane taking Yes. That was exquisite cover. People yep. still talk about that. And I remember, and all I'll say about him was, when they trotted me into Coach House, you know, it was a smallish press, and I was grateful that that stage again because I kind of remember I was 33 or 34. I thought I was never getting published by anybody, and I knew that my life would be a great sorrow if, it, if I didn't. I knew I'd, get, you know, I'd have enough women, I knew I'd have enough money, but I just knew that if I didn't publish at least one novel, it was going to ruin my life. I just knew it. I knew it. And I was right, by the way. It would have ruined my life. It would have haunted me right to my deathbed. So anyway, when I looked in, there was this young Gordon Robertson, and he was fiddling with the cover, and the cover was awesome. Off, like, and I'm not exaggerating, like one eighteenth of an inch. You couldn't even notice it. And he said, bring that ruler over here. And, he's, and the, the, his assistant brought it over and he said, yeah, see, it's, it was literally like one sixteenth and one eighteenth. And, and the guy said, well, it's, you know, it's too late now. And I remember Robertson saying, no, it isn't. And it's not going out of here until it is right. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this guy is the real thing. And then he went on to have this quite famous career. But you know, you realize, as you see young men at work, you can sort of see who's going to make it and who's not. And he was one of those guys where you go, got it. Great works of art are not thrown together. Just as an example, we're looking at a, a couple of covers here, uh, Lost Between Houses and uh, Sparrow Nights. And what's interesting is that you only get part of the faces right. on the cover. And the same thing holds for China as well. You yes. get half of Yes. So is this intentional? Or? I have... You know what, there are certain areas I stay out of. 
and I stay out of other people's areas of expertise. And I say, I like it or I hate it. There are reasons why the faces aren't revealed. My guess is, is that you don't want the reader to see completely the face on the cover because that will be the face they will remember when they're reading the text. Whereas if it's a partial of a face, they can then imagine what the character looks like. Nobody wants to know what Gatsby looks like. Everybody wants wants to imagine. Wants to, they want nobody, their own version, don't they? Nobody wants to know what Natasha in War and Peace looks like. I want my own Natasha. That's why I won't even go and see the great Russian movie, which is 12 hours long, even though I know the Natasha there is a perfect. I want my Natasha. It's over a period of quite a few years, too, that this portion of the face is, yes. is evident. Yes. Now, would you like me to read something pretty soon? I, I would. I've had How a much? very strenuous, but I, I don't have a lot of gas, and I don't want to run out of gas right in the middle of your interview. And now we're back at the beginning again, back to Raisa Shostatsky, the memory of whom, it would seem, began this slow swim back up the river. I did see her one more time. Well, not exactly her. I was walking toward the library at Victoria University in Toronto, where I'm teaching these days. That's a lucky break. When I saw a beautiful young girl sitting on a bench with a friend, dark coat, dark hair, dark eyes. It was a fall day, leaves on the ground, squirrels running around here and there. And as I approached her, I felt almost embarrassed by her extraordinary beauty. I went up the stairs and through the glass doors into the library, and as a clutch of students pushed by me, I turned around for a last look. It was not a look of longing or desire or even curiosity, but something else. It felt as if I was on the verge of remembering something. But what was it? was Raisa. She reminded me of Raisa Shostasky, my long lost beauty. Raisa, my love. Turning to my son in the park bench, I said, what a privilege it is to be alive. What makes you say that? He asked. More and more things these days. It's time for us to get back to the hotel. We have a long day tomorrow, a live breakfast television show, then lunch with someone, and then some print media interviews. I'm pooped. Besides which, tomorrow is my birthday, and I want to be in good form. Nick wants to hang around in the lobby for a while, maybe have a drink in the bar, see what time the girl at the desk gets off work, who knows. I want my bed. At my age, beds have become something mostly for sleep. I say goodnight to him. Good night to Sunset Strip. Good night to the little park where I once suffered, but to which I have now so happily returned. Just thinking about all this, how long life is, how much happens, puts my head quickly on the pillow. And after only a few moments, the sound of a car horn, a voice in the hallway, I am asleep. Now we can end that there. There's one question I want to ask you before we go, and that is, you say, what a privilege it is to be alive. And Nick asks, what makes you say that? More and more things these days. Just stop wanting more things and be grateful for the things that you did get, as opposed to eternally pissed off at the things that you didn't get as well as. And that took me a long time to arrive at that.
to actually stop asking for more because I've spent my whole life saying, yeah, that's fine, but nothing's good enough. I want yeah. some more. And I, I find myself as a younger man, you know, and I would have been with a woman and I'd have a nice job. And I find myself standing in the driveway at two o'clock in the morning, looking up down the street saying, I'm still hungry. I want something else and heading off into the night. And sometimes heading off into the night destroyed the very thing that I had, that trying to get that extra 15%. And then I finally understood one day that that hunger for that 15% isn't a description of something wrong with your life. It's a description of what it's like to be a human being, that you are, by definition, hungry. It doesn't mean there's something wrong. And now, turn around in the driveway and go back inside. Speaking of driveways, the last time we met, you mentioned that there was a limousine waiting for you. There was. And that you'd always wanted to say that. And <laughs> allow me to say that I think there should be a limousine waiting for you for this book. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank so you much. so much. Thank you for a really lovely interview. I'll be speaking with David Gilmore, who is the author, most recently, of The Perfect Order of Things, published by Thomas Allen in Canada.